0: Mr. President.
1: The Democratic leader.
0: The articles of impeachment before us charged President Donald John Trump with, the offenses, with offenses against the Constitution and the American people. The first article of impeachment charges that President Trump abused the office of the presidency by soliciting the interference of a foreign power, Ukraine, to benefit himself in the 2020 election. The President asked a foreign leader to do us a favor, us meaning him, and investigate his political opponents. In order to elicit these political investigations, President Trump withheld a White House meeting and hundreds of millions of dollars in military assistance from an ally at war with Russia. There's extensive documentation in the record proving this quid pro quo and the corrupt motive behind it. The facts are not seriously in dispute. In fact, several Republican senators admitted they believe the president committed this offense with varying degrees of opprobrium. Inappropriate, wrong, shameful. Almost all Republicans will argue, however, that this reprehensible conduct does not rise to the level of an impeachable offense. The founders could not have been clearer. William Davy, a delegate to the Constitutional Convention, deemed impeachment, quote, an essential security, lest the president, quote, spare no efforts or means whatever to get himself reelected. James Madison offered a specific list of impeachable offenses during the debate in Independence Hall. A president might lose his capacity or embezzle public funds a despicable soul might succumb to bribes while in office. Madison then arrived at what he believed was the worst conduct a president could engage in. The president could betray his trust to foreign powers, which would be fatal to the republic. Madison's words. When I studied the Constitution and the Federalist Papers in high school, admittedly, I was skeptical of George Washington's warning that, quote, foreign influence is one of the most baneful foes of Republican government, unquote. It seemed so far-fetched. Who would dare? But the foresight and wisdom of the founders endures. Madison was right. Washington was right. There is no greater subversion of our democracy than for powers outside of our borders to determine elections within them. If Americans believe that they don't determine their senator, their governor, their president, but rather some foreign potentate does, that's the beginning of the end of democracy. For a foreign country to attempt such a thing on its own is contemptible. For an American president to deliberately solicit such a thing, to blackmail a foreign country into helping him win an election is unforgivable. Now, does this rise to the level of impeachable offense? Of course it does. Of course it does. The term high crimes derives from English law. Crimes were committed between subjects of the monarchy. High crimes were committed against the crown itself. The framers did not design a monarchy. They designed a democracy, a nation, where the people were king. High crimes are those committed against the entire people of the United States. The President sought to cheat the people out of a free and fair election. How could such an offense not be deemed a high crime, a crime against the people? As one constitutional scholar in the House Judiciary uh, Hearings testified, if this is not impeachable, nothing is. I agree. I judge that President Trump is guilty of the first article of impeachment. The second article of impeachment is equally straightforward. Once the president realized he got caught, he tried to cover it up. The president asserted blanket immunity. He categorically defied congressional subpoenas, ordered his aides not to testify, and withheld the production of relevant documents. Even President Nixon, author of the most infamous presidential cover-up in history, permitted his aides to testify in Congress in the Watergate investigation. The idea that the Trump administration was properly invoking the various rights and privileges of the presidency is nonsense. At each stage of the House inquiry, the administration conjured up a different bad faith justification for evading accountability. There is no circumstance under which the administration would have complied. When I asked the President's counsel twice to name one document or one witness the President provided to Congress, they could not answer. It cannot be that the President, by dint of legal shamelessness, can escape scrutiny entirely. Once again, the facts are not in dispute, but some have sought to portray the second article of impeachment as somehow less important than the first. It is not. The second Article of Impeachment is necessary if Congress is to ever hold a president accountable again, Democrat or Republican. The consequences of sanctioning such categorical obstruction of Congress would be far-reaching, and they will be irreparable. I judge that President Trump is guilty of the second Article of Impeachment. The Senate should convict President Trump remove him from the presidency, and disqualify him from holding future office. The guilt of the president on these charges is so obvious that here again, several Republican senators admit that the House has proved its case. So instead of maintaining the president's innocence, the president's counsel ultimately told the Senate that even if the president did what he was accused of, it's not impeachable. This has taken the form of an escalating series of Dershowitzian arguments, including, quote, abuse of power is not an impeachable offense. Quote, the president can't be impeached for non-criminal conduct, but he also can't be indicted for criminal conduct. Quote, if a president believes his own re-election is essential to the nation, then a quid pro quo is not corrupt. These are the excuses of a child caught in a lie, each explanation more outlandish and desperate than the last. It would be laughable if not for the fact that the cumulative effect of these arguments would render not just this president, but all presidents immune from impeachment and therefore above the law. Now, several members of this chamber said that even if the president is guilty and even if it's impeachable, the Senate still shouldn't convict the president because there's an election coming up. As if the framers forgot about elections when they wrote the impeachment clause. If the founders believed that even when a president is guilty of an impeachable offense that the next election should decide his fate, they never would have included an impeachment clause in the Constitution. That much is obvious, alone. Each of the defenses advanced by the president's counsel comes close to being preposterous. Together, they are as dangerous to the republic as this president, a fig leaf so large as to excuse any presidential misconduct. Unable to defend the president, arguments were found to make him a king. Let future generations know that only a fraction of the Senate swallowed these fantasies. The rest of us condemn them to the ash heap of history and the derision of first-year law students everywhere. We are only the third Senate in history to sit as a court of impeachment for the President. The task we were given was not easy. But the framers gave the Senate this responsibility because they could not imagine any other body capable of it. They considered others, but they entrusted us to us, and the Senate failed. The Republican caucus trained its outrage not on the conduct of the President, but on the impeachment process Process in the the House, House, deriding, falsely, an alleged lack of fairness and thoroughness. The The conjured outrage was so blinding that the Republican majority ended up guilty of the very sins it falsely accused the House of committing. It conducted the least fair, least thorough, most rushed impeachment trial in the history of this country. A simple majority of senators denied the Senate's right to examine relevant evidence, to call witnesses, to review documents, and to properly try, try the impeachment of the president, making this the first impeachment trial in history that heard from no witnesses. A simple majority of senators in deference to, and most likely in fear of, the president of their party perpetrated a great miscarriage of justice in the trial of President Trump. As a result, the verdict of this kangaroo court will be meaningless by refusing the facts, by refusing witnesses and documents, the Republican majority has placed a giant asterisk, the asterisk of a sham trial, next to the acquittal of President Trump, written in permanent ink. Acquittal in an unfair trial, with this giant asterisk, the asterisk of a sham trial, is worth nothing at all. To President Trump, or to anybody else. No doubt, the President will boast he received total exoneration. But we know better. We know this wasn't a trial by any stretch of the definition. And the American people know it, too. We've heard a lot about the framers over the past several weeks, about the impeachment clause they forged, the separation of powers they wrought, the conduct they most feared in our chief magistrate, But there is something the Founders considered even more fundamental to our Republic. Truth. The Founders had seen and studied societies governed by the iron fist of tyrants and the divine right of kings, but none by argument, rational thinking, facts, debate. Hamilton said the American people would determine, quote, whether societies are really capable Of establishing good government from reflection and choice, were forever destined to depend on accident and force. And what an astonishing thing the Founders did. They placed a bet with long odds. They believed that reflection and choice would make us capable of self-government, that we wouldn't agree on everything, but at least we could agree on a common baseline of fact and of truth. They wrote a constitution with the remarkable idea that even the most powerful person in our country was not above the law and could be put on trial. A trial, a place where you seek truth. The faith our founders placed in us makes the failure of this Senate even more damning. Our nation was founded on the idea of truth, but there was no truth here. The Republican majority couldn't let truth into this trial. The Republican majority refused to get the evidence because they were afraid of what it might show. Our nation was founded on the idea of truth. But in order to countenance this president, you have to ignore the truth. Republicans walk through the halls with their heads down. They didn't see the tweet. They can't respond to everything he says. They hope he learned his lesson this time. Yes, maybe this time he learned his lesson. Our nation was founded on truth. But in order to excuse this president, you have to willfully ignore the truth and indulge in the president's conspiracy theories. Millions of people voted illegally. The deep state is out to get him. Ukraine interfered in our elections. You must attempt to normalize his behavior. Oh, but Obama did it too, they falsely claim. Democrats are just as bad. Our nation was founded on the, on the idea of truth But this president is such a menace, so contemptuous of every virtue, so dishonorable, so dishonest, that you must ignore, indeed sacrifice, the truth to maintain his favor. The trial of this president, its failure, reflects the central challenge of this presidency and maybe the central challenge of this time in our democracy. You cannot be on the side of this president and be on the side of truth. And if we are to survive as a nation, we must choose truth. Because if the truth doesn't matter, if the news you don't like is fake, if cheating in an election is acceptable, if everyone is as wicked as the wickedest among us, then the hope for the future is lost. The eyes of the nation are upon this Senate. And what they see will strike doubt in the heart of even the most ardent patriot. The House managers established the President abused the great power of his office to try to cheat in an election, and the Senate majority is poised to look the other way. So I direct my final message not to the House managers, not even to my fellow senators, but to the American people, My message is simple. Don't lose hope. There is justice in this world, and truth, and right. I believe that. I wouldn't be in this government if I didn't. Somehow, in ways we can't predict, with God's mysterious hand guiding us, truth and right will prevail. There have been dark periods in our history but we always overcome. The Senate's opening prayer yesterday was Amos 524. Let justice roll down like water, righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. The long arc of the moral universe, my fellow Americans, does bend towards justice. America does change for the better, but not on its own. It took millions of Americans hundreds of years to make this country what it is today. Americans of every age and color and creed who marched and protested, who stood up and sat in. Americans who defended this democracy, this beautiful democracy, in its darkest hours. On Memorial Day in 1884, Oliver Wendell Holmes told his war-weary audience that, quote, whether one accepts from fortune her spade, and will look downward and dig, or from aspiration her axe and cord and will scale the ice, the one and only success which is yours to command is to bring to your work a mighty heart. I have confidence that Americans of a different generation, our generation, will bring to our work a mighty heart to fight for what's right, to fight for the truth and never, never lose faith. Yield the floor.
1: Mr. President. Majority Leader. The United States Senate was made for moments like this. The framers predicted that factional fever might dominate House majorities from time to time. They knew the country would need a firewall to keep partisan flames from scorching, scorching our republic. So they created the Senate. Out of necessity, James Madison wrote, of some stable institution in the government. Of some stable institution in the government. Today, we will fulfill this founding purpose. We will reject this incoherent case that comes nowhere near, nowhere near justifying the first presidential removal in history. This partisan impeachment will end today. But I fear the threat to our institutions May not, because this episode is one of a symptom of something much deeper. In the last three years, the opposition to this president has come to revolve around a truly dangerous concept. Leaders in the opposite party increasingly argue that if our institutions don't produce the outcomes they like, our institutions themselves must be broken. One side has decided that defeat simply means the whole system is broken. That we literally tear up the rules and write new ones. Normally, normally when a party loses an election, it accepts defeat. It reflects and retools but not this time. Within months, Secretary Clinton was suggesting her defeat was invalid. She called our president illegitimate. Former president falsely claimed that President Trump didn't actually win. He lost the election, the former president said. And members of Congress have used similar rhetoric. A disinformation campaign, weakening confidence, in our democracy. The very real issue of foreign election interference was abused to fuel conspiracy theories. For years, prominent voices said there'd been a secret conspiracy between the president's campaign and a foreign government. But when the Mueller investigation and the Senate Intelligence Committee debunked that, the delegitimizing endeavor Didn't stop, didn't stop. Remember what Chairman Schiff said here on the floor. He suggested that if if the American people re-elect President Trump in November, that election will be presumptively invalid as well. That's Chairman Schiff on this floor saying, if the American people re-elect President Trump this November, that election will be presumptively invalid as well. So they still don't, still don't, accept the American voters' last decision. And now they're preparing to reject the voters' next decision if they don't like the outcome. Not only the last decision, but the next decision. Heads, we win. Tails, you cheated. And who can trust our democracy anyway, they say. This kind of talk creates more fear and division than our foreign adversaries could achieve in their wildest dreams. As Dr. Hill testified, our adversaries seek to divide us against each other, degrade our institutions, and destroy the faith of the American people in our democracy. And as she noted, if Americans become consumed by partisan rancor, we can easily do that work for them. The architects of this impeachment claimed they were defending norms and traditions. In reality, it was an assault on both. First, the House attacked its own precedents on fairness and due process and by rushing to use the impeachment power as a political weapon of first resort. Then their articles attacked the office of the presidency. Then they attacked the Senate and called us treacherous. Then the far left tried to impugn the chief justice for remaining neutral during the trial. And now, and now for the final act, The Speaker of the House is trying to steal the Senate's sole power to render a verdict. Speaker says she will just refuse to accept this acquittal. Speaker of the House says she refuses to accept this acquittal. Whatever that means. Perhaps she will tear up the verdict like she tore up the State of the Union address. So I would ask my distinguished colleagues across the aisle, is this really, really where you want to go? The president isn't the president? An acquittal isn't an acquittal? Attack institutions until they get their way? Even my colleagues who may not agree with this president must see the insanity of this logic. It's like saying you're so worried about a bull in a china shop that you want to bulldoze the china shop to chase it out. And here's the most troubling part. The most troubling part. There is no sign this attack on our institutions will end here. In recent months, Democratic presidential candidates and Senate leaders have toyed with killing a filibuster so the Senate could approve radical changes with less deliberation and less persuasion. Several of our colleagues sent an extraordinary brief to the Supreme Court threatening political retribution if the justices did not decide a case the way they wanted. We've seen proposals to turn the FEC, the regulator of elections and political speech into a partisan body for the first time ever. All these things, Mr. President, all these things, a toxic temptation to stop debating policy within our great American governing traditions and instead declare a war on the traditions themselves. A war on the traditions themselves. So colleagues, whatever policy differences we may have We should all agree this is precisely the kind of recklessness, the kind of recklessness the Senate was created to stop. The response to losing one election cannot be to attack the office of the presidency. The response to losing several elections cannot be to threaten the electoral college. The response to losing a court case cannot be to threaten the judiciary. The response to losing a vote cannot be to threaten the Senate. We simply cannot let factional fever break our institutions. It must work the other way, as Madison and Hamilton intended. The institutions must break the fever rather than the other way around. The framers built the Senate to keep temporary rage from doing permanent damage to our Republic. The framers built the Senate to keep temporary rage from doing permanent damage to our Republic. That, Mr. President, is what we will do when we end this precedent breaking impeachment. I hope we will look back on this vote and say, this was the day the fever began to break. I hope we will not say this was just the beginning. I ask unanimous consent, the Senate stand in recess subject to call of the chair. Without objection, the Senate stands in recess, subject to the call of the chair.